light on your chair. Got your book. <clears throat> You're on. Oh, okay. Move, hang, entrance, also door. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I recounted my ways. You answered me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts, and I will meditate on your ways. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be great, gracious to me through your law. I have chosen a way of trust. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands. You have set my heart to Hey, nice stuff there. Dalet. That's door. That's uh, okay. He has an answer, but I'm assuming that he's monitoring. So um, let's see. Did you notice? You didn't notice. Can you imagine that? Holy cow! Those are um, I don't know what they are, but they came from Israel. Mike, that came down to visit for his Something. birthday, What's sent a pair of nothing. Well, I just thought I'd wear them in the the church because they they they're really comfortable and they're the exact perfect size. And he sent a pair from uh, for Hidiko from Israel too. So. How do they know your stuff? I don't know. I, you know what? I all I know is that he sent them, so I will wear sandals and the shoes from now in the church from now. But you know, it, the funny thing is, tell that, him you need size eleven. No, these things are perfect. I mean, these literally fit perfectly. They've got indentations. I, I don't know. How, he probably measured my feet at night or something, made a mold or something. I, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, he might have. He might have gone and got my footprint out of the backyard. So they were from Sergio. No. They're from Mike, who came to spend his birthday with us about half a month ago. Well, I don't know. Like I said, he probably made a mold. Okay, we got to get started here. We are in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, and we're starting in verse 10 today. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. Okay, let me read that there. Yeah, very close. None is without significance. Same thing. Okay, here we go. I little funny start today but I just had to show you that I actually will wear shoes once in a while and I've never worn sandals that don't have that thing under your toe you know like the yeah between your toes never never worn a pair like this before so it's gonna take getting used to but anyway um, let's see here 1410 Paul can oh wait before we do we got to pray we got to pray and we also have to uh, I'm wait I know but I'm way off today anyway because I've been working really hard all day and um, I have one prayer request, Freda. She uh -oh. fractured her spine. She's been having real pain. She didn't know what it was. She went and got an MRI, and she has a fractured spine. And then she says she's got some other issues, and she may be hospitalized soon. Oh so uh, I told her if she needed anything to let me know, and she said some. she met some Christian people that are willing to help her out completely, I think neighbors. So, yeah, but anyway, keep her in your prayer, and uh, you guys live close to her, so if you get a chance, go visit her and... and Who's that, Freda? No, she lives right here, right down the road from you. Yeah, just blocks down the road from you. Anyway, um, so we'll go ahead and pray about that and about getting into the service. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray for Freda. We ask that you bless her and take good care of her and her uh, her difficulty right now and uh, heal her back. Wow, what a, what a nightmare to go in and find out you've got a broken back over something you've done. So <laughs> give her strength and give her uh, comfort and assurance uh, while she's in her time of convalescing and lord we ask that you bless this time together and we thank you for this wonderful word you've given us wow is it precious we thank you for it and we just ask that uh, we would handle it properly but if there's anything that is 
incorrect that it would be alerted to the uh, eyes and the ears of the people that are listening so that they could uh, correct that deficiency. But we pray that uh, we won't have that, that things will be proper and in accord with what you would intend for us. And we certainly pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we'll go ahead and get started now. 14.10. Paul looks back, or Paul continues with his dialogue concerning the speaking of tongues with a thought that looks back on what he has said and forward to a continued discussion about tongues in the church. In verses 7 and 8, he mentioned instruments and the sounds that they make, literally their voice. Then he compared those things to tongues or languages by saying, so likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Just as a trumpet that isn't given a specific tune will fail to assemble the army, so a language spoken that no one understands will fail to edify the people. But this is the purpose of languages. They are given to instruct, to warn, comfort, and so on. All languages have purpose, and no word in a language can be without meaning if it's a true language. All right, everybody got that? We're talking about the nonsense the charismatics speak, and uh, if it's something that doesn't make any sense to anybody, then it's not a language. It's obviously not a language because there is to be meaning behind words, and the meaning is to be conveyed to somebody. You take Acts chapter 2, and the people spoke in languages that they didn't understand themselves. That was a supernatural gift of the Spirit, but the hearer did understand. Somebody in the process understood what was going on. There was either the person speaking the language, and then he uh, explains what is said in that language, or there is a person that is hearing it and understands what is being said. Other than that, you're not going to have any tongues that are spoken that are of the Holy Spirit. Not going to happen. All right. Rather, there must be a thought connected to it or it is a useless sound, not a part of the language. In other words, thoughts are connected to words which are invented in order to convey those thoughts. We invent words all the time. And we might take two words and put them together and make a new word, or we might take a word and change it a little bit, but people understand it based on the context of the surrounding words. And you say it enough, and pretty soon it becomes a word that everybody uses, and then it gets introduced into the new lexicon of 2020. Next year, people will be putting it on there. Um, I remember when Rush Limbaugh took two words, and he put them together years ago, right? You remember that? And it, it made the women go crazy. But it is actually in the dictionary now. Feminazi. He took oh, two words. Right. He made it up. It is yeah, nice. yeah. They added it into uh, the, the annual people that uh, throw in the uh, new. Uh, new uh, you hear it on the radio every year. They add in a certain number of new languages. But he took two understandable thoughts, put them together, and he said that these are feminists and they are Nazis because that's exactly what they were. And he made up that word feminazis and. There it is. It's something I bet you if you look and I won't do it now, but if you look in there, it'll be in some of the modern dictionaries. But it's certainly in the one that comes out every year and says we're introducing these 10 or 15 words into the English language. So there you go. Um, uh, he says, uh, where was I? Um, yeah, they must be connected to a thought or it is a useless sound and not a part of the language. In other words, thoughts are connected to words which are invented in order to convey those thoughts like Rush Limbaugh. Understanding this, Paul says, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world. The word translated here as languages is literally voice. It is the same word used to describe the sounds of the instruments in the previous verses. It is used to describe the words of prophets, the voice of the prophets when you're reading in the Hebrew. 
All right, the word in Hebrew is kol, okay, Q-O-L, kol, it's a voice. In Acts 13, 27, the outcry of an assembled crowd, the voice of the crowd is noted in Acts, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the voice of the prophets in Acts 13, 27, and then the outcry of an assembled crowd, the voice of the crowd in Acts 19, 34, okay? The voice of the Lord is recorded in Acts 22, verse 9, which was only understandable to Paul and not those around him. Remember that when he's speaking, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, the people around him didn't understand it, it being the Hebrew language. The people with him were probably Greek speakers or, you know, whatever, maybe they were Latin speakers or they had their own native dialect, but they didn't understand him. But Jesus was speaking in the Hebrew language. That's evident right from the uh, text itself, okay? The uh, blast of the trumpet, the voice of the trumpet in Revelation 8, verse 1. And even the sound of the wings of the locusts is recorded the voice of the wings in Revelation 9, verse 9. All of these and many other examples show that translating the word here as language is a general idea, not what is specifically on Paul's mind. He's giving a general idea when he says this is the voice or the language. He has shown that there are many voices in the world, such as trumpets, flutes, languages, and so on. And so he is tying this word, voice, to all of those things. The intent of his words is anything that makes an understandable sound, okay? Voices, anything that makes an understandable sound. When the trumpeter goes out and trumpets reveille and the people assemble, or when he uh, trumpets retreat and the people retreat, it's making a voice. It's an understandable sound. It doesn't have to be an exact known language like English or Hebrew or Japanese or whatever, but it will include that, the voice of the Japanese people, the voice of the English people, okay? This is certain because he finishes the verse with, and none of them is without significance. Whether it is the voice of the trumpet or whether it is the spoken Hebrew language, the voice is what carries or conveys the meaning. This is why earlier he used a variety of words to describe sounds. And that was uh, back in verse 7. Went through that last week. The idea here is conveyed by the voice. If there's no understanding of the voice, then there is no grasping of the intent behind the voice. His words in this verse almost make a playful sound. Vincent's word studies translates the ideas, so many kinds of voices and no kind is voiceless. So that, that would be a more literal translation of what he's saying. We're, we're inserting the word language here, which could confuse somebody because the word, what is it, glossalia in Hebrew, tongues, tongue is actually speaking of language, where voice conveys a much greater uh, meaning. It can be the voice of the English language. Like I said, it can be the voice of the trumpet. As long as it is making a distinct sound that somebody understands, the voice is knowable. If not, then it's a unknowable voice, a, you know, a, just a sound blowing Static. in the wind. A what? Static. Static is a good word there. Why then the mar minute parsing of his thoughts? Why is he doing this? Why is he giving us these minute parsing of every thought that he has. He's giving this and then this and then this. He's being very precise in what he is saying. Why is he doing that? Because his thoughts are what drive proper theology. Everything that he is saying is coming to a head to make a point. If you are speaking in a supposed, I won't say a tongue because I won't dignify it like that in a church, and you're saying something that nobody understands and you don't understand it, then yeah, Linda said it, shut up. Right, because it has nothing to do with proper theology. It has nothing to do with 
anything that edifies anybody on the planet at all. And not even yourself because you don't understand it because you're making something up, right? So there you go. Um, he's driving proper theology with his minute parsing. And they are what are intended to drive proper conduct in the church. Unfortunately, it has become the standard to ignore such exacting analysis and make stuff up, which is completely unbiblical. If you've been to a charismatic church, you know that. The congregations and church meetings devolve into anything but sound theology and proper conduct. And we will get to that down in, I think it's verse 27. We're going to get to uh, speaking about the rules for tongues. What are they and how can you know if something is of the Spirit or if it's not? All right. Life application. Paul expects every word uttered in a church to be a word which is understandable and which will edify the congregation. If they do not meet these requirements, then they are not in accord with the Bible, which was given by the Spirit of God, and thus they are not of the Spirit of God. One plus one always equals equals two in theology. You'll never have it not equal to. Okay, God is a God of order. He is a God of logic. He is a God of discipline in all ways. All right. When we mix two things together, we take yellow and we take blue and we mix them together. We're going to come up with what? Red, right? Absolutely not. You're going to come up with green. It's going to happen every single time because God is a God of order. When he takes one and he takes one and he adds it together, you're going to have two. And if you multiply one times one, you're going to get two, right? No, you're going to get one because God is a God of order. Everything he does will always make sense. All right. Life application. Paul expects every, oh, I said that. We've said the uh, life, life application. It's not of the Spirit of God if it doesn't match what the Spirit of God says. That's why I translate everything I say in the church and when I give you the Hebrews because I want you to learn more than just the surface text. And especially I do that when there is an error in the surface text. There might be no error in the NASB, but the New King James Version reads differently and it's wrong. I'll say that here's what it says and here's why it's wrong or vice versa. The New King James Version does get some things right from time to time and somebody else gets it wrong and I'll say, this is what that says in the uh, Hebrew and here's why. And you get a better understanding of that. All right, 1411. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker and he is a foreigner to me. Okay, obviously. He is speaking about a known language there, right. obviously, because he's saying that the person is speaking and he's a foreigner to him. He is implying that the person is speaking something that is understood, that is reasonable, and that is not made up. Okay. Therefore, it's given for us to look back and consider what was said in order to understand what will now be conveyed. Paul has written about different instruments, each which conveys its own distinct sound. He then discussed the individual tunes which an instrument can make. He also noted that there are many languages in the world. Each has its own voice, which is unique and which cannot be comprehended by anyone who, which can be comprehended by anyone who understands that voice. Like I said, there was a time when I went into the military, I was brand new there, and I had no idea what the sound of reverently was. I had no idea what the sound of taps was. But after how is it? Six six weeks of Air Force training, which isn't real demanding, I can tell you, but it's enough to drive you crazy. After six weeks, you will always know the voice of Reveille. You'll always remember it. And when you hear it played like in a movie or something, you get that same terrible feeling. Even, yeah, because I heard it at three o'clock every morning for six weeks. And it was just like a nightmare. You know, you're trying to get some sleep because you haven't slept at all. 
during the day and all night long, somebody's been snoring next to you and you haven't gotten any sleep, and all of a sudden this reveille. Why do they do it at three o'clock in the morning? Because that's when they want you to wake up. That means time to get up. Yeah, then they go out and you muster, and then they tell you to go. Oh, you'd love it. We should send you there. You'd love it. Just send dogs in to wake her up. Yeah, send dogs in to wake her up. Exactly. No, you see, but that's what I'm saying is there was a time when I didn't know what that meant, but then I learned the voice of it. And I get that same creepy feeling every time I hear that from now on. And when you hear taps, you think of, oh, the day is ending. And, the, you know, even if it's in 12 o'clock in the afternoon and you're watching a movie and you hear it, you now know the voice of taps. And you have a mental image of what that is conveying. Even if it's 12 and, I, you know, I know that if I'm not watching the movie, I just hear it playing, I know that it's the end of the day. And they are now playing taps. You just, you know, that's the voice of the language. Um, that was somebody else. That wasn't me. So we'll go on. Um, he then discussed the individual tunes which an instrument can make. He also noted that there are many languages in the world. Each has its own voice, which is unique and which can be comprehended by anyone who understands that voice. Chinese is not Russian. Navajo is not Spanish. English is not Vietnamese. Unless one understands the voice of the language, it is simply unintelligible noise without meaning or cohesion. However, to a person who understands that language, each word identifies something which can be described by the word. Nouns, verbs, conjunctions, and so on all begin to form a cohesive thought which conveys a reasonable, understandable message to those who know that language. Now, when I go through the Hebrew on uh, uh, Monday, Monday while I'm doing the sermon typing, I'll be going through the Hebrew, right? And there will be a word which is actually a verb, and everybody translates it as a noun. That happens a lot. Hello, Miss Garrett. How are you? Welcome. Good to have you here. So what I will try to do, and that happened this past Monday, as a matter of fact, I will try to translate it so that when I explain what's going on in this verse, that you understand that it's actually a verb. There's action behind it. And sometimes, I think the word was, what was it? Oh, I spent like 10 minutes just trying to think of a way of... Uh, what was that? It doesn't matter. Anyway, it was a word that really doesn't have any way of being made into a verb. So I had to paraphrase it into something else with the ing on it so that everybody would say, oh, I get that because it's actually a verb and it was done for a reason. Moses was making a point using this one particular word again and again and again. And understanding that that is a verb in that sentence actually changes your thought about what is being relayed. You come to a new revelation about what's going on, and you'll see that in about 10 weeks, the Lord willing. Maybe we'll be out of here by then. But that's what I'm saying is we have nouns, we have verbs, we have conjunctions, we have all of these things which come together to make a cohesive imagery in our mind concerning what is being said, all right? Something that's reasonable, something that's understandable. It's a message to everybody who knows that language. If I said to Burke, um, uh, I can't even think of how to mess up the English language right now, but if I said something that didn't make any sense, but it was all English words, you'd know that it wasn't correct. Even though I'm speaking all English words, there has to be cohesion within the language as well. All right. Based on this, Paul gives his therefore by saying, if I do not know the meaning of the language, the word voice is used here again. It literally says the power of the voice. If I do not know the power of the voice, the power is its meaning. And the voice is what is being relayed. Remember now, there are different words that are being translated as language here. And that's not a good way to translate a Bible. Sometimes it's the only way to do it for it to be simplified. For when you're reading the Bible, you don't want to get 
too deep into something. But if you were to tr translate the word that literally means language as language, and then you take the word that means voice as voice, you would, if you're willing to think about it, you would understand much more of what's going on. Unfortunately, they have not done that in almost any translation that I can think of. Maybe Young's, I don't remember right offhand, but we have the power of the voice. The power is its meaning, and the voice is what is being relayed. If one doesn't know the meaning behind what is being relayed, think of the battle trumpet that sounds out a tune that you have never heard before, then I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks. The guy over there is, the general says, I want you to sound uh, flank left. Everybody do a um, left flanking maneuver, right? Or I put up my right arm and I say, okay, flank left. He says to do that, okay? Nobody has ever heard that out in the battlefield before. The generals heard it and the trumpeter heard it. They made it up the night before and he didn't teach it to any of the people in the battlefield. And they hear that sound and what's going to happen? Chaos. chaos, absolute chaos. They have no idea what to do. And so they start running to the right. And then the guy does the flank left again. And they all go, well, that wasn't right. So they start retreating. And he goes, no, that, it's chaos. You have to have understanding behind a language for it to have any sense. Okay? That is what's being relayed by Paul. He is being so precise here. He's being so precise so that we don't fall into the error the churches have fallen into all over the world. You know, especially since the Azusa Street uh, revival and they started the modern charismatic movement, Azusa Street, they, that's where the modern charismatic movement began. Somebody was doing something crazy in the church and everybody said, I like being crazy. And so they've been perpetrating crazy now for the past hundred years or so. But, you know, over uh, Seattle and there's a place up in Canada, I'm trying to think of it. They actually said the Holy Spirit is working so much overtime that they had people get on airplanes and fly over the city. And they were rolling around in the planes and barking like dogs and stuff. That's how insane this has gotten. Yes, it's true. Go look it up on the internet. Everything on the internet's true. Anyway, um, but no, it's, it, it is. Uh, uh, one city in Canada, they did it over Seattle. And these people are just claiming that the Holy Spirit is active in this one part of the country. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. Paul is giving very, very minute, precise wording so that we never fall into that error. And yet we fall into that error. Sorry, it's just, you know, that's the way it is. Okay, he says, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks. The term here, foreigner, is the Greek word bar barbaros. Heard that before, haven't you? Barbaros, a, barbar a barbarian, hence a foreigner. Here it is not intended as a deprecatory phrase as it often is, but rather it is indicating unintelligible words. The Greeks viewed any foreign language as harsh or rude in comparison to their language. And we would do the same thing. We'd hear a foreign language and, you know, we think, oh, that sounds so weird. You know, they have too many SHs or they have too many <sighs> or, you know, you get into the Chinese and it's all phonetics. And you think, isn't that odd? How do they get that? And we think our language is superior. Well, it's not. It's just different and it's conveying its own voice. Okay. But that's what the Greeks thought. And so they called anybody that didn't speak their language a barbarian, a barbaros, okay? So um, the Greeks viewed any foreign language as harsh or rude in comparison to their language. Thus, they applied the term barbar to them. It indicated any language that wasn't Greek, known languages, which that to them seemed like unintelligible sounds. This is what Paul is conveying here. He is saying that even though the language is a real language, with an actual voice, I mean, they hear the guy speaking Vietnamese, they know that he's conveying to somebody else and they're, they're communicating, but they don't understand it. It's simply confused sound to them if it isn't understood by the hearer, right? You go downtown or go to a Thai restaurant. Does anybody in this place here speak Thai? 
No. Okay. Go to a Thai restaurant and listen to the two girls that are standing behind the counter talking. It doesn't sound like anything to you. It just sounds, you know, it's Thai. You've heard it enough because you've had enough Thai food in your life, but you don't know what they're saying, right? Now you go into, uh, let's see, let's pick another language that we haven't, uh, a Mongolian restaurant. Never heard Mongolian speaking in your life. You have no idea even what language they're speaking. You say, it kind of sounds Russian, but then it kind of sounds Chinese, you know? And you're thinking, what is that? It's completely unknown to you. It's not like going into the Thai place and you say, I know they're speaking Thai. I just don't know what they're saying. You don't know what they're saying at all. It's that's what is being conveyed by Paul here. Okay, Paul is not speaking of made up languages. He's not doing that incoherent sounds without meaning behind them. He is speaking about the perception of those sounds by the hearer who doesn't understand them. Thus, he is not speaking of a personal prayer language or a supposedly spirit inspired language that only God knows. He wouldn't do that because that is not reasonable. He's not talking about that at all. He's speaking about a known language that he just doesn't understand. He's speaking of a real language spoken by another group, which is not understood by the hearer. To confirm this, he completes his sentence with, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Just as the sounds of the speaker are unintelligible to the hearer, even though the speaker obviously understands them because they are the voice of the speaker, meaning an understandable concept put into real words, the hearer will interpret the speaker as barbaros, a foreigner, for failing to understand the words. This occurs around the world about 10 jillion times a day. People get frustrated at others who don't speak their own language, and hearers get frustrated at those they don't understand. How many times have you seen on the news in the past five years where somebody will say they got in an argument because they walked up to the... the person at the uh, counter and he's why don't you speak English right because he's frustrated he's had the 17th you know foreigner walk in and come up and he doesn't understand what they're saying he's probably a nice guy but he's just frustrated and what happens he gets fired which he should because he shouldn't you know he is supposed to be there serving the customer but there's a point where you go into overload hearing all of these languages you don't understand them and you get frustrated you move to another country and you're not trained in that language I can guarantee you it's frustrating Especially you go in, in Japan, when you get onto the train system, when you're in Tokyo, you will quite often have English subtitles, we'll call it. You know, you're going to Roppongi or you're going to Shinjuku or something, and it'll tell you that in English. You get outside of Tokyo, and there is nothing in English. Nowhere. I don't care where you go in that country. It is all in Japanese. And unless you have somebody that speaks Japanese and English, you are not going to be able to find your way around. Unless you've had somebody right down to you take the train 10 stops make sure you get off at the 10 stop walk across the pad walk down 57 feet to where the red line is stand there get on the next if you don't do that you are going to be lost because you have no idea there's nothing in english over there okay but most people fortunately in japan want to speak english to you i don't care where you go in that country to the littlest village on the the uh, west coast of the country because you know Hidako and I would drive all over the country and we'd stop there was always somebody there that wanted to try out their English with you and it may be pretty poor but they would be able to get across to you oh you just go down to Sam's you know diner and they'll tell you what to do and you know then go down to uh, the hardware store and make sure you have plenty of yen because you're going to need it for the uh, thing you're looking to buy whatever they, they will do their very best even to the point of exceeding themselves because they just want to show you how much they've learned of your language. It's it's just the way it is. Do but you not have your own interpreter? 
Oh, listen, there was no such thing back then. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I had my own interpreter. Yeah, with Hedico, I had no problem at all because it, she was such a good uh, interpreter. My wife, I'm so proud of her. She's not here, and I wish she was because I'm going to brag on her for a while. She was a, an interpreter when she got her U.S. citizenship because she never had it until we went overseas, and she got it, and they needed uh, Japanese-English interpreters, and they needed them very skilled. You could hire Japanese, but they weren't allowed to get the security clearance. You have to be a, a U.S. citizen. It's it's very difficult to find these people. And within three minutes of her getting her U.S. citizenship, they had her clearance way higher than I ever had. They had her working up at uh, United States Air Force, Fifth Air Forces uh, in the headquarters building. And she was translating English into Japanese and Japanese into English. Real secret stuff there. She, today, if I ask her Tell me something. She won't. She's she's tight-lipped as can be. Anyway, so she would do this translating, right? Afterward, we went down to Malaysia. We were in Malaysia, okay? Not many jobs there. You got the U.S. Embassy and you got nothing else. You're not going to get a job in the uh, a local economy. But guess what? They wanted English teachers over in Malaysia. And they also wanted especially Japanese teachers. And so at night, she'd go down and she'd teach Japanese. And she did really well doing that. But more than that, guess what happened? She's working. She ran the commissary at the United States Embassy. Okay. So she's in the commissary. The people upstairs in translations find out that she is a certified translator with Fifth Air Force's United States Japan. And guess what happens? They hire her to translate Japanese for between the U.S. Embassy and the Japanese Embassy. Well, guess what happens after that? And you talk about a conflict of interest. I don't know how she got away with it, but the Japanese embassy called and they said, we need a translator from Japanese into English. So she was translating for two embassies and the U.S. embassy approved it. Wow. And she was translating classified stuff on both sides and they didn't seem to care. Can you imagine? Yes. I could not believe it. That's because they knew the answer. said, hey, tell me what with it. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't take she, yeah, she is the most tight-lipped person on this planet. Yeah. But she translated for both embassies. She ran the commissary. And at night, she'd go out and she'd teach Japanese and English. I'm telling you, that lady, she is amazing. She is absolutely amazing. So, yeah. Anyway, there you go. And because she's qualified. It's not just that she knew, knew the language. She knows it precisely. She's she is no dummy. Okay, she is a very intelligent person, but she's as quiet as a mouse. Yeah, maybe more so. Anyway, um, yeah, people get frustrated. Uh, they get frustrated at others who don't speak their own language. Hearers get frustrated at those they don't understand. For particular emphasis, go to France and test this concept there. They have a special knack for treating foreigner foreign speakers, especially English speakers, in the most frustrating way. I can tell you this, if you go to France, they do not like people that don't speak their language. They don't like them. They're a very arrogant society. If you're French, I'm sorry, it's just true. Okay, if you're listening, every person that I know that is, I got somebody obviously has been to France here because she is shaking her head. Every person I know that has gone to France and that has said, can you please help me, will get no help at all. Or they will actually give you wrong information because they don't like the fact that you're there not speaking their language. I know a person, I'm not going to give his name, but he and his Arab wife went to France one time and he was asking people in English and nobody would help him. Nobody. And so what he did is he started speaking in Russian, his native language, and everybody wanted to help him. Everybody. But they do not like English speakers that will not speak French. Yeah, like Quebec. Exactly. Same thing. So it's just, I'm sorry if I, I offended a Fran French person over that. 
hey, listen, it's your country. We've, We're we've, the ones that have been there. We've stepped on their toes for a lot of years. Oh, yes. Acting like they're stupid because they don't know our language. So. Exactly. Okay. They're they're yeah. acting stupid, but they are not. They can speak yeah. English yeah. all over the country. Yeah. But, you know, when they know that you speak English, they are going to pick on you. Okay? I've heard this from every single person without Exception. Every person I know that has gone to France has said the same thing. So don't say every or all. Yeah, never say every and never never say all. But every person that I have spoken yes. to that has been there, every person that I have spoken to has gotten that treatment. However, I do understand that if you go out into the country, especially around Normandy and the places where the Americans are still remembered for what they did, they love you over there. I've heard that from a lot of different people. You go out to these memorials and the people, the older people that were there when they were real young and they saw what the Americans did, they they have a great appreciation for it. But you get into any city and people are gonna be arrogant. That's just the way it is. People start you know, forgetting the real life and they start turning into, I don't know what. But anyway, don't mean to belittle the French too much. They've done something good in, in history. And uh, uh, you know, I will say this, if it wasn't for the French, we wouldn't be here right now because they bailed us out in the Revolutionary War. Okay, they did come. It was a little late, but they did come. And then the guy that came and uh, later after the war, and his name was um, Lafayette. not Lafayette. Uh, there's oh, the historian. The, the historian. He Tocqueville. Yeah. De Tocqueville. That guy had all the appreciation in the world for America. He wrote a lot of good stuff. You want to read some great commentaries? Read his. Okay. But yes, Lafayette was a great. He really helped bail us out. He. Uh, he was a great asset to the U.S. So they did good things as well. So there you go. I'm trying to make up for... Uh, anyway, um, has, as has been noted, Paul has consistently spoken of real languages that are spoken by real people groups and which have real meaning. Nobody in their right mind would speak unintelligible garble at the office among their co-workers, nor would they do it while at a city council meeting. They would both be humiliating and they would be humiliated. As this is so... Why would you act in such a manner in the holy congregation of the saints? Think about it. We have the local Sarasota County Council, which is a bunch of nobodies. They're going to be in their job for a couple of years, and then they're going to be out. And people would never embarrass themselves in front of those people like that. And yet we'll embarrass ourselves and the Lord in the process by acting that way in a church. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Life application. When you are in church, speak words which have meaning and which edify the congregation, or as Linda said earlier, don't speak at all. Or I think she was a little less polite. She said, just shut up. There you go, 1412. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Okay, a little different here. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Same thought, just a little different worded. Even so, relies on what he just said and leads into the rest of the verse. Taken as a whole, it reads, Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. If you're speaking blah, blah, blah in a church, you're not edifying anybody, and he just commanded you. This is a prescriptive epistle. He's telling you to edify the church or don't say anything. All right, again and again in chapter 14, Paul has attempted to wake up the believers in Corinth and thus us because this is inserted into the Bible as one of the 66 books of canon, okay, and thus us to pursue that which is useful and edifying 
rather than that which is self-centered and merely for show. The abuse of speaking in tongues was such that it had become a complete distraction to what would otherwise be a normally functioning church. And this is right at the beginning. The inception of the church within 30 or 40 years of the beginning of the church, he has to give this instruction because people were abusing something that was actually meant for the apostles for a very short period of time to edify the church, to show them that the Lord's word went out to all people, etc. Tongues are not needed today in any way, shape, or form unless it is a known language which is being used for instruction. Okay, that's it. Other than that, there's no need to have somebody stand up and speak in another language. That's why people go to Papua New Guinea and they learn the language of the people of Papua New Guinea, and then they translate the Bible into that language so that those people have that Bible. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. That's it. And that's what the Lord has given for the church age to get this glorious gospel message out, is the Bible. And the Bible is a known language. It is in a known language. Wherever it is translated, it is not garbledy goop, and it is not just handed to us. People have had to give their lives for the Bible. If you think about it from that perspective, which I never have until right now, but if you think of it from that perspective, people that have gone overseas, like we read about that lady um, who, whose husband died and she went and finished up the translation down in Mexico or South America. Remember that it was yeah, one or two yeah, weeks ago. Okay. If you think about that and then you think about what they're doing in charismatic churches, they are completely disgracing the memory of people like that, that have actually gone out and done the hard work and learned languages. Cindy has, she was a missionary over in China and she had to learn Chinese in order to do that. Okay. It is disgracing those people. And it's also disgracing the Lord by doing what they're doing in churches. And this started all the way at the beginning. There is a reason for having people trained in languages. There is a reason for teaching in languages and for people to learn those languages. But there is no reason for what goes on in charismatic churches at all. It is disgraceful. Okay. So, um, if a speaking in tongue, which no one understands, means that we remain a foreigner to those around us, then we should pursue a gift other than speaking in tongues. That's what Paul is getting to. Paul is trying to be diplomatic about the issue without directly bringing insult upon those who continue to speak in tongues. Once again, keep thinking of the word tongues. It means what? Language. It means a language because when you go through the Bible and you see the term tongue used, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, it is speaking of a known language. It's not speaking of anything other than that ever. Okay? So keep thinking. When they're using this word tongue, it is not, in my opinion, a good translation. I wouldn't do that if I was to sit down and translate the Bible. I would say language. I may say tongue, which is a language, paraphrase it and put it in italics so people know I'm not trying to add to the Word of God, but telling them one time and then after that, leaving it that way with it, you know, a note next to it or something saying from this point on. Like, you know, when you read, get a Bible, let me show you something. When you get a Bible, it has something in it that's called a, at the beginning, it's called a, yes, preface. Okay. Most, most good Bibles, not all of them, but most good Bibles will have a preface. And what they will do is they will give you a reason why they're making the translation. Okay. At this point, it's kind of pointless because we have 8,952 billion uh, translations in the English language. It's kind of pointless. It's people just trying to, you know, show how smart they are maybe and to make a lot of money because you can make a lot of money off Bible translations. Do you want to know where the most money is made off Bible translations? King James, why is that? No, uh, Public domain. Yeah. So if you 
trans if you have a King James Bible and you make a King James Bible, you know, uh, set and you put it in nice leather or something and you put nice little pictures in there, that is all profit for you. All of it. You don't have to pay any royalty at all. And when you tell people this is the only inspired translation of the Bible, you're looking for more business. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. The entire premise of the King James Version controversy is because people are making a whole lot of money off of it. And they're keeping people in bondage. That's what they're doing. It has nothing to do with reality. I will assure you. I'll give you one example of an error in the King James. I'll give you two. The first one. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, it says that Moses is going to, he says, you are to make it based on the pattern you've shown on the mountain, right? Okay, that's an Exodus. And then you get to the book of Hebrews, and it says that it was, the pattern was made based on what he saw on the mountain. So you got an error right there. One is the pattern is the original, but in Hebrews, they got it wrong, and they call the, the made copy the pattern, okay? Error, right? There's no way around it. It's an error. Another one, Deuteronomy 8, verse 9. You will go and you dig brass out of the hills, right? Can you dig brass out of the hills? Absolutely not. Brass is an alloy. alloy. You dig copper out of the hill. You diggeth copper out of them hills, right? Anyway, we could go on and on. I've got on the Wonderful One website at least, at least 500 errors in the King James Version, and I've only done a couple books of the Bible. At least 500, okay? When they started printing it now currently, they took the preface out because the preface tells you we're not the only inspired translation. They tell you that. They say, make sure you know lots of translations because we might be wrong and somebody else might be right. And they go through every possible thing that the King James only people speak about. They refute it in their own preface there. But that's all taken out now. So you have to go and actually read it online, which you can get it. Or just type in original preface to the King James Version. It's about 11 pages of very difficult reading, but you will see it. If you want the important parts, email me and I'll show you where to go get them because I've got them all on one of my websites. But don't worry about that. We'll get back to the preface. The preface is given for a reason. It'll tell you the style. It'll tell you the devotional quality. Burke is falling asleep over there. You are really tired. If you need to go in back and take a nap. <laughs> he, he is just beat. He, poor guy. Um, he came in here and he was already tired when he walked through the front door. Oh, look at this. Look at this. Can we help you, ma'am? There's he to go. Okay. They'll tell you about the format. They'll tell you about the Old Testament text that they use. What's that? You're going to have to repeat all what you said about Oh, yeah. Oh, I will. No, I'll tell her on the way home. Um, <laughs> she'll be in her car and I'll be in mine, so that'll take care of that. Okay, the Old Testament text. They'll tell you about the New Testament text. Which copies of the manuscripts do they use? If they don't use that in a particular place, then they will normally footnote it. They give you all of that information. They give you all kinds of information. They'll even get into, let me see if they put it in the, this one. I don't see it here, but maybe they did. Let me look really quickly. They will quite often give, yes, here it is. This is one that I like to let people know about, okay? Because it's one of those things that you need to understand. This all has to do with what Paul is saying, by the way. I'm not diverting. This is actually a part of languages. If you go to this particular King James, a new King James version, it gives the format. You've got the style. You've got the devotional quality. Sorry, go to the format. Here's what it says. And this is one of the things that uh, some translations get mad at people because it says the Lord instead of Jehovah, right? Well, they have done that for a theological reason. What is Jesus called in the New Testament? The Lord. So when you call 
Jehovah in the Old Testament, Lord, what are you doing? You're making a theological point that Christ in the New Testament is the Lord of the Old Testament. This wasn't by chance that they did that. This was because they understood the Trinity, the divine nature of Christ. And that's why they did it. We'll see how they explain it here. Because every translation of the Bible should have a preface. If it does, read that preface. I always read the preface, uh, the, the preface and I want to know why they do certain things. Okay, here's what it says. The format of the New King James Version is designed to enhance the vividness and devotional quality of the Holy Scriptures. Ooh, I feel excited already. Words or phrases in italics indicate expressions in the original language which require clarification by additional English words. They're telling you, we're not adding to the Bible, we're clarifying. And those italicized words will do that. Most translations don't do that anymore. And so you don't know what's original and what's not. And that's kind of too bad because I like having the italics. They let me know that's not in the original. And normally when I read the King, New King James Version in the morning is what I read. When I read it and it has an italicized word, I skip over it with my mind completely. I just read right over it because I want to read it the way it would be in the Hebrew if it's properly translated. It may not be, but anyway. So it says here, words or phrases in italics. Then it goes um, next throughout the history of the King James Bible. Oblique type in the New Testament. Why would they use, they have italics in the New Testament, but they have another one, oblique. What would that indicate? Anybody? You got two different sets of fonts outside of the standard font. Think about it. what are they doing? If they have something in oblique text, it's an Old Testament reference. They're saying this comes from the book of Jeremiah and they will put it close to italics, but it's not, it's oblique. And so they've done that so that you know that this is actually a quote from the Old Testament. That's ingenious because many translations don't do that and you're just reading it like Paul wrote it, yeah, you know? In order to know it, you have to you have to know the Bible. That's right. If you don't know the Bible, you're not going to know that it's actually a quote. So by putting it in a different font, you're getting something valuable. Okay? Oblique. Verse numbers in bold type indicate the beginning of a paragraph. Okay? Because there are paragraphs, discernible paragraphs. Some people will disagree on them and they'll begin a paragraph in a different place. But usually they're very easy to figure out where the paragraphs begin. Okay? Poetry is structured as contemporary verse to reflect the poetic form and beauty of the passage in the original language. If you read Ye Old King James Version, it doesn't do that. It's just block, 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 all the way through. But with this one, they have taken and they've put everything that is in poetry in the Old Testament, and they've offset it. And so now you can see the poetic form of it. And you say, oh, when I get to that, now I know why they've done that. Because in the Hebrew, this is actually a poetic expression. Remember in Numbers when we got to, they were traveling around and they got up to Vahev in Sufa and all these places, they, they were poems. And I went and I gave you all the Hebrew in it and I explained it because it's very hard to understand. And you have to go through every single word to understand the context of what's being said. And all of a sudden, it's like a flower. It blooms. When you're reading in English, it doesn't make any sense at all. Okay, so that's showing you that it's in poetic form, it's poetry, time to stop and evaluate it differently than you would block text. And then here's the one that I like. The covenant name of God was usually translated from the Hebrew letters Lord or God using capital letters shown. L-O-R-D, yod Hey vav Hey. that's Jehovah. They would say Lord, okay, capital letters. In the King James Version, Old Testament, this tradition is maintained in the present edition, the name is so capitalized whenever the covenant name is quoted in the Old Testament from a passage in the Old Testament. So when you read capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you will know it is referring to Jehovah. Okay, you'll know that. And then when it is capital L, small O-R-D, does anybody remember? Because we did this before. Yeah, it's um, somebody who took authority. 
No. Adonai. Adonai. It's the Lord, but you're not saying his name. In other words, when David would speak to the Lord Jehovah, he would say Adonai. Or when Isaiah, I saw Adonai high and lifted up. He doesn't want to say the name. So he will say Adonai, capital L, small O-R-D. Then the next one is what you're referring to, L-O-R-D, all small. Okay, and what is that referring to? Somebody that's over you. Like when twice in the books of Exodus and Numbers, Aaron called his younger brother Moses, my Lord, twice. And both times he did it, it was because he had screwed something up. Remember the golden calf, right? And he said, Lord, called him L-O-R-D. And then th that in the Hebrew would, let's do this. Okay, you want to do that? Just so, because it's a known language and it's showing us something. This will only take a minute. And then I'll give you an example from Judges chapter 6. Because we've done this before, but there are probably people that haven't seen it. L-O-R-D. This is the way that they would translate this in the New King James Version or from the King James. And most Bibles will follow this. Okay, Lord. That is yud Hey vav That's a terrible Vav. Anyway, we'll leave it. Terrible Vav. yud Hey vav Hey. That's the name of Jehovah, Lord. Anytime you see that, you'll see that. And you might see uh, the Lord God. Then it's Jehovah Elohim. Lord God, okay? Then you have L-O-R-D. This is small. I know that's a terrible R, but that's okay. This would be Adonai. Adonai. This is speaking about the Lord or to the Lord without using his covenant name. So I would say, Adonai, I love you. You saved me. You rescued me from the pit. Okay, that's what that would be. And then L-O-R-D. That would be Adon. Mr. Or it could be master. Or it could be something like that. If you put the the I at the end of it, Adoni, that becomes my Lord. It's possessive. That I is possessive, okay? So you've got that. We're going to go to Judges 6. We'll do an example really quickly, and then we'll go back to what we're reading in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. But in Judges chapter 6, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about here, and you'll understand. I like to do this because I want people, when they're reading the Old Testament, to understand what they're reading. It's more than just... It's more than just... Uh, uh, you know, Sarah go ahead. Abraham Lord. Yeah, she called him Lord. Yeah. She would have called him Adoni, my Lord. Adoni, my Lord. That's right. She would have. And that's because it's a term of respect. Okay? It just simply means Mr. Okay? Like, I would be Adon Garrett. If I went to Israel today, that's what they call me, Mr. Garrett. Right? Okay? But Judges 6, here's what it says. It says here in, we're going to start in Judges 6, verse 11. Now, the angel of capital L-O-R-D, the angel of Jehovah. L-O-R-D. But remember why they have done this. It's to make the connection between the Lord of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New. That is why they've done this. It's not changing the Bible. They've told you in the preface, if you were wise enough to read your preface, why they have done this. Okay? Now, it says in Numbers, uh, Judges number 11, 611. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was an Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, here's the imagery. He's down in the winepress and he's threshing the wheat. Why is he doing that? Because if he threshes it out in the open, they're going to see the chaff blowing and they're going to come and they're going to take away their wheat. So he's, it says because of the Midianites. So there you go. Okay, and it says the angel of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, appeared to him and said to him, the Lord, Jehovah, L-O-R-D, all capital, is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon, verse 13, said to him, Oh, my Lord, all small, Adoni. He doesn't know who he's speaking to, so he calls him, you know, my mister. 
He says, oh, my mister, if the Lord Jehovah, L-O-R-D, all capital, is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord Jehovah, all capitals, bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord Jehovah has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord Jehovah, all capitals, turned to him. So the angel of the Lord is the Lord. Everybody got that? There was a man standing there that he doesn't recognize. This is an incarnation of the eternal Christ. This is Jesus standing there talking to him, and he didn't know it. That's why he called him Adonai, my Lord, okay? But it says right there, then the Lord Jehovah turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Verse 15, here it is. So he said to him, oh, Adonai, oh my Lord, he now understands that this is Jehovah. So it's got a capital L, small O-R-D, okay? Oh Adonai, he's showing the respect of the Lord God to this, this person standing there. He knows that it's the Lord now, and that's why he uses that term. Oh Adonai, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord, Jehovah, said to him, Surely I will be with you and shall defeat the Midianites as one man. I'm going to take you all the way down to verse 22, okay? Uh, as one man. It says, uh, Then he said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk to me. He's certain that he's speaking to the Lord because he used the term Adonai, but he wants to verify it. And so he says, Show me that it is you. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So this is the Lord saying, I'll wait. I'm going to prove to you that I am who I said I am. Go. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he brought the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Then the angel of God. Now it's changed from the angel of the Lord to the angel of God. It would be Malach Elohim instead of Malach Yehovah, but it's the same individual. So he's now been called the angel of the Lord. He's been called Adonai. He's been called uh, the angel of God. He's been called Jehovah. He's been called four different titles correctly and one incorrectly, my Lord, small. Okay, take the meat. And God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on the rock. Pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord, it just said angel of God. Now it says the angel of the Lord. We are being shown without any doubt at all that this man, this physical man that's standing there is not only the angel of God, he is also the angel of the Lord who is the Lord. Everybody see that? Yeah. This is very purposeful. There's no error. You cannot make an error in this and say that is not speaking of a human being standing there. It is, and yet it is the Lord God. There's no way to get around that because they have been so purposeful. It goes on and it says, He put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord, Jehovah, all capitals, departed out of his sight. And then it says this in verse 22. Now Gideon perceived. Yes, perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, Adonai Jehovah. O Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord, Jehovah, face to face. So he called him Adonai, capital L, small O-R-D, God. I have seen Jehovah face to face. There is no way to get around that. 
when you're reading that and not understand who is being spoken to. You cannot come to any other conclusion than it is a physical being. And guess what? God does not have parts. We've talked about that. God has no parts, and therefore it is the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That is why they have done that. And I went through all of that so that you understand that everything that the Bible does has purpose. Languages have purpose. Everything that we are studying in 1 Corinthians 14 is to lead us to the understanding that God is a God of order, he is a God of purpose, and he expects us to use languages, known languages, for his glory and for our edification. All right, that's why we're doing this. Okay, so God is a spirit. That's right. He said he didn't have parts. Well, that's okay because spirits don't have parts. God is. Yeah. Oh, that's right. God is spirit. And also, guess what? Nobody has ever seen God. And then Paul says he lives in an unapproachable white light. I'm speaking about God, the Creator. Okay, I'm speaking about the Father. Is completely unseeable. We will never see God the Father. We will always see Him revealed in God the Son forever as he ceaselessly and endlessly reveals God the Father to us. Go okay. this, uh, oh, alas, O oh Lord God, again. And you said it was, oh, what up here? Adonai Elohim. Lord God. Adonai. It's speaking of Jehovah, but it's only, this term is only used when speaking of Jehovah. So Adonai Elohim is what that says. Okay. Lord God. All right. Or maybe it said Jehovah Elohim. Oh, no, that was afterward. He said Adonai Elohim, and then it confirmed Jehovah Elohim. I'd already closed the page, so I hope I got that right. But anyway, that's when he was speaking to him. Adonai Elohim. All right. So um, we'll go on. We're still in verse uh, 11. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, where was I? Okay. Oh, we're on 12. Oh, okay. Well, then let me see where we were. Um all right, well, I'm just going to start with 12 again, and we're, we're going to start. Even so, oh, I did. Okay, even so, I remember that now. Okay, so we're in the last paragraph of my page of commentary. Here we go. If speaking in a tongue, which no one understands, means that we remain a foreigner to those around us, then we should pursue a gift other than speaking in tongues. This is where I left off there, okay? Paul is trying to be diplomatic about the issue without directly bringing insult upon those who continue to speak in tongues. The purpose of tongues was to demonstrate to the Jewish believers that God was working through the name of Jesus. That is the purpose of them speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2. Everybody got that? That is the purpose of it. And to convince them that he is the fulfillment of their scriptures, their worship, and their hopes. Now, why would he do that? Why would he specifically do that in Acts chapter 2? What is he doing in Acts chapter 2 when he's giving everybody the message of the gospel in their own language? Think about it. That's exactly right. He is undoing what he did in Babel in Genesis chapter 11. He spread the languages around the world, and yet he kept one language for himself. He kept one language for himself, and that language goes through the Bible. Now, of course, Aramaic steps in at times, and we have you know, things going on in the Old Testament with Aramaic as well. And then eventually the Hebrew characters became Aramaic characters, okay? And that's what they use today. They don't use the Paleo-Hebrew, but he used that in one language, okay? And he was working through one group of people. And he was showing them, I am now undoing that because of Jesus Christ. In other words, even though we still have 
all these languages. All of these languages still apply. We still speak English, and that's by God's de design, okay? But he is saying that my message is acceptable in those languages. And he actually gave a foreshadowing of it when? With the Greek translation of the Old Testament, about 200 years before the coming of Christ. Why? Because the Greeks had taken over Israel. And so they had translated it. You can read about the translation of the uh, Hebrew into the Greek in what's called the letter of Aristius. You can go to uh, wesley.nnu.edu and you go to that site and type in the letter of Aristius and you can read it right online. Okay, and it'll, it's probably not an accurate letter, but it gives you the information of how that came about. Okay, anyway, God was working very slowly to get us back to the point where he was going to use his message to all of the people of the world. And that's why Ray and Jess are over in Papua New Guinea right now. It's because that message continues to be acceptable to the people of the world. And it's the only way that they are going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is by somebody telling them that. Okay, so that's the point of Acts chapter 2. Very good there. And to convince them that he, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of their scriptures, their worship, and their hopes. A further demonstration of tongues was again given to show them through Peter's visitation to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, that the Gentiles had been accepted by the Lord as they were. Everybody see that? In Acts chapter 2, it was all Jews. It was only Jews, and it was Jews hearing the message of other languages in, their, in the language that they knew. Not in the Hebrew language, but it was saying to the Jews, this language is acceptable for the transmission of my word. Okay, that's why he did that. But when he did the opposite in Acts chapter 10, Gentiles are actually speaking in tongues. And it's to assign to Peter, guess what? This is acceptable because they are Gentiles, does not exclude them. And because they speak a different language, it does not exclude them. That's the purpose of the tongues. Nothing else beyond that. Okay, there are tongues that are spoken in churches. We understand that. There are people that know other languages. But that is not the purpose of speaking those tongues nowadays. Nowadays, we do the hard work, just like I said, and we send people over to those countries and they learn the language. Or if somebody comes in this church that doesn't speak English, remember Tavo from Honduras, right? He had to sit here, very complicated sermons, I know, and he listened and he grasped what he could. And eventually, before they left, which he wasn't here that long, he was really learning the complexities of the Bible, all right? That was to his credit. Most people won't do that. They'll go to a church where they speak Spanish and that'll be the end of it because it's easier that way. But that was what he did, okay? So the Gentiles had been accepted by the Lord as they were. It was to show that they were brought into the same new covenant as the Jews without converting to being Jews or observing the law of Moses. Once again, one covenant, not two, not one to the Jews and one to the Gentiles. Hyperdispensationalism is wrong. And this will show it to you as much as anything else. We could come up with a thousand points at which would dispel that. There is one gospel message to Jew and Gentile. All right. The only other time that the tongues were mentioned in Acts is the account of the establishment of the church is in Acts 19. Certain believers had been baptized into John's baptism, but not into Jesus' baptism. When they were baptized into Jesus, they received the gift of tongues. This was done to show them the difference between the two baptisms. You see this? It has nothing to do with what people say they're doing in their church. It has purpose. There is order to what God is doing. The first was to show the Jews that their language was not the only acceptable language. The second one was to show the Jews that the Gentiles as individuals were acceptable to God in their own language. And the third was to show that the baptism of Paul 
was, or I'm sorry, of John was not acceptable in comparison to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of what John proclaimed. Those are your three examples. And guess what? The book of Acts is is descriptive. Descriptive. That's right. I do that all the time. Don't worry. You're pulling a Charlie there. Don't worry about it at all. It is a descriptive book. I like your sandals. Yes. Descriptive book. It is not to be used as doctrine except understanding why the Lord did those things. And that's what we're doing right here. We're understanding why the Lord did these tongues. Now that we know, we don't need to have tongues in the church anymore unless we are edifying believers. It's not for some supernatural gift in any way, shape, or form. Okay? So, this was done to show them the difference between the two baptisms. This was in Ephesus that it occurred, and the congregation at Corinth would probably have heard this exciting news. Because of the grand nature of what transpired, the now-established church continued to force the use of tongues where it was no longer needed. This is what Paul is so diplomatically trying to get them to stop doing. Thus, Paul is spending an inordinate amount of time on the issue in order to get them to grow up and to stop acting like children. That's right. Verse 20, he will say, stop acting like children. All right, we're not there yet, but we will be soon. Nowhere else in the New Testament are tongues mentioned in this type of context. And the word tongues is only used again in Revelation under a completely different context. And so without trying to humiliate these immature believers, he is attempting that, to get them to stop with unneeded tongues and to pursue greater gifts. Tongues were a gift given as a sign at the establishment of the church. They were never intended to be used in the church age in the manner that they are being used by the Pentecostal movement today. If believers would simply read the Bible, study the words of Paul, and apply these studies to their lives, they would see that the use of tongues was a specific gift with limited purpose. Other than for times when translation between languages is needed, tongues are something Paul actually argues against in the now established church. Okay? I know that this is going on and on and on, but Paul is being so meticulous that we have to go on and on and on because we want to keep people from error. Error comes in, and anytime, you know, you pull out one strand from the, uh, the sweater and what's going to happen? The whole thing unravels. It's not just one string. It's all the way through that thing. And that is the point of having good doctrine, is to understand that you are not pulling out one thread that will suddenly pull out another and another and another, and all of a sudden you're believing you can lose your salvation, or you're believing in, you know, replacement theology, because people have pulled the string. Don't pull strings, okay? This is seen with perfect clarity by his words that, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Rather than making a self-centered show which edifies no one, he asked them to seek gifts which actually edify the members of the church. The word gifts is inserted by the translators, okay? If you read that verse, gifts is inserted. It's italicized in my, partic my particular Bible, okay? Literally, it says, since zealous you are for spirits. As Vincent's Word Studies notes, Paul treats the differential spiritual manifestations as if they represented a variety of spirits. To an observer of the unseemly rivalries, it would appear as if not one spirit, but different spirits were the object of their zeal. He's saying that they aren't glorifying God. They're not glorifying the Holy Spirit. They're trying to have different spirits and everybody's competing against each other instead of working in harmony in the church. 
In other words, instead of looking at the gifts of the Spirit as having one intent and purpose, which is edifying of the church, they were looking at the gift of tongues as the case of I have the Spirit because I can speak in a foreign language. And remember what I said when I was looking for colleges to attend. That was one of their requirements. You must speak in tongues or you do not have the Spirit of God and you cannot come to this college. Absolutely crazy. That is as crazy as a football bat and maybe worse. Add in nanny nanny boo boo and you can see the attitude of these immature believers. It is an attitude which continues to permeate immature believers in churches in an ever-increasing manner since the establishment of the Pentecostal movement. It demonstrates a departing from sound doctrine intended for edification and return to the immature behavior of the dysfunctional church in Corinth. Life application. Conduct in the church should be edify, not look, see how spiritual am I? Okay. 1413. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. Okay. It needs to be remembered that the context of who Paul is writing to and under what the circumstances are. He is writing to the church of the Corinthians at a very early date in church history. In that congregation, there were Jews, there were Gentiles alike who had come to know Christ. It is certain that the majority of the Jews felt the prayers to God should be in their language. If you go to a synagogue, a messianic synagogue today, guess what they're going to do? They're going to pray in the Hebrew language because that's the language that Jesus spoke. And that's the way it's got to be. Okay. Learning to speak Hebrew is not an overly difficult task. Even today, many Jewish people can read and speak the language, but they have no comprehension of the words. They often participate in the reading of scripture at certain times, special times during the year, but they are only spoken words without meaning to their minds. The sounds are unintelligible. My neighbor was a Jewish guy. He was a uh, uh, saxophonist. Remember him? Um, uh, Bruce. Yeah. Was, that was his name, Bruce? Yeah. Okay. He moved. Anyway, he was a saxophone player and he played in charismatic churches. He didn't believe anything. He didn't believe in Jesus or anything else, but he, they hired him to play, right? And he also played in bars all around Gulfgate and here and there. Okay, he was my neighbor for years. Very nice guy. And when they had like Hanukkah, guess what he'd do? Dad would come from, he lived down the road, he'd come and they'd have a big Hanukkah party. And they'd sit there and they'd open the Bible and they'd read the Bible in Hebrew. And afterward, hey, Bruce, what were you reading? I don't know. He could read it. He could speak it, but he had no idea what he was speaking. That's the way Muslims are all around the world, all around the world. They read Arabic, they speak Arabic, and they have no idea what the Quran says. As a matter of fact, that's what uh, Usama even said. He said that a couple of uh, visits ago, but that's true. I know when we lived in Malaysia and Indonesia, these people all could read Jawi, they called it. They had no idea what they were reading, but they could read every word of it. Okay. That's what my neighbor would do, but got to do it in Hebrew because that's the original language. Okay. So, uh, they participate in the reading of scripture, certain times during the year, like my neighbor, but they didn't know what they were talking about. Today, we have the same thing come up in churches from time to time. Lutheran churches may have a prayer written by Martin Luther read aloud. It will be in the original German, and almost any competent English speaker can read the words in German because they are the same letters. Anybody ever read German? It's very easy. You just read it. It's just like reading our language, but it's we're obviously pronouncing it a little bit off, but you know, but then they have high and low German, so there would be a difference even within Germany. They got like ish, liebe dich would be 
I think high German and then low German is ich liebe dich, right? So there's a difference, but it's the same language, okay? I might have gotten those backwards, so don't email me. I don't really care. That was years ago. I took it in high school. I had a reason for taking it. I won't tell you why, but it was a good reason. Teacher was good looking. She was good looking. That's true. Bert got that right. She was beautiful. And I won't tell you what she did before she was a teacher, because if you knew, then you'd be like, oh, Charlie. Anyway, um, she was. She was a beauty. Hannah Lord Jackson was her name. Anyway, every guy in Brookside High School took German. Every one of them. Okay, so we'll go on. Uh, uh, they're the same letters. Maybe the person even took a year of German in high school. If so, their pronunciation will be even better. But there's no understanding at all of what the words mean. They're reading Martin Luther's prayer and they don't know what's being read. Okay, this is what Paul is speaking about. Real languages being spoken during the church service. The only problem is that they are unknown tongues to the people's ears. This is what he's referring to. Again and again, he's speaking of known languages that people don't understand. Even sometimes the people they are reading them, like my neighbor Bruce, okay? Understanding this concept helps us to grasp what Paul is saying. Therefore, rests upon his words concerning the understanding of the voice of a thing, or even language which is heard, for the benefit of the person who is listening to a Hebrew prayer, passage, or other communication, the speaker should pray for the ability to interpret the words he is speaking. If not, then the people who are listening will never come to understand the meaning of what has been said. They will remain unedified in their thinking, and the words will have been wasted breath. Burke walked in today, and the first thing he said to me was, I hear people singing in tongues because I was playing Hebrew music. It just was, I had to turn something on and I turned it on and there it was, great songs that uh, are playing. And so I was in the back cleaning and here comes Burke and he says, I hear somebody singing in tongues. Very cute. Anyway, the gift of interpreting what is spoken will come as the speaker learns the language. This is to be his prayer. Remember he said, pray that he'll understand. That's what he's talking about. I don't understand what I'm reading. I pray that I will understand it. Well, how is he gonna do it? Next week he's gonna take uh, Corinthian lessons or Greek lessons from the guy down the road because he's a Hebrew and he wants to learn the language. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about pray that the Lord will suddenly give me the insight into this language. That is not what is being said. He's asking the person to pray that I will get the understanding of this language. And that's what I do. I, oh Lord, I hope that I can learn Hebrew. I hope that I can learn Japanese. I'm praying about it. People email me and they say, I want to learn Japanese. One of my friends did that just, uh, he ordered the Rosetta Stone this past week for Japanese. His son is in Japan. He's going to Japan for the second or third time. This time he wants to be able to communicate. Well, pray about it and then take Rosetta Stone and learn the language. Okay. I told him that if he had emailed me first, I would have sent him my Japanese, you know, CDs from uh, Pimslor because I got like a four volume thing of it. It's rote learning only. That's all you're going to learn. You're not going to learn to speak the language to other people. You're going to learn to speak the language. But it's a start. Okay. But you're going to send Hitiko. Oh yeah, I could. I'll send. I'll put Hitiko on a plane, and you're going to go over to. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. Anyway, um, all right. So uh, let's see here. They, you should pray that. Uh, if not, then the people who are listening, yeah, if the people who are listening will never come to understand the meaning of what has been said. They will remain unedified in their thinking and the words will have been wasted breath. Okay, so in his prayer, in essence, he should say, Lord, give me the understanding of these words so that I can properly interpret, they, interpret them for the benefit of others who hear them. 
in this all will be edified through those spoken words. So think of the guy here that is reading Martin Luther's prayer from whatever year, 1519 or whenever Luther lived, okay? And he says, Lord, I want to be able to explain this next time I do this next year on whatever holiday it is. Okay, that's what that's talking about. All right, life application. Yeah, we got time for one more. Let it be the goal of all Christians to speak edifying words to those in the congregation. If we are given something to speak which is written in Spanish, German, or Japanese, we should pray that we can not only read it, but interpret it as well. Otherwise, the words have no substance behind them for those who hear. Okay, good stuff. 1414. 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays but my mind is unfruitful. Okay, think of this. Not speaking about a goofy made-up thing. He's speaking about a known language. If I pray in Hebrew, which I can do, I have no idea what I'm saying. What's the point? My mind is not being benefited at all. Let me read. It says, if I pray in Hebrew, in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. My neighbor prayed in Hebrew every single time they got together for a Jewish feast. Right? And it's actually not a Jewish feast. It's a feast of the Lord. But anyway, they call it a Jewish feast. And dad would come down and they'd have all the people come over and they would pray, having no idea. So what's the point? That's what, yeah, what's that? That's right. Yeah, it's like garbly It's like garbly gook. Okay, that's right. So that's what he's saying here. Okay, 1414. Some translates, translations insert the word unknown before the word tongue to provide a sense of clarity. They will say, if I pray in an unknown tongue, okay? Uh, Paul just spoken, <clears throat> excuse me, in the previous verse saying, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. This, as noted, refers to someone who is praying in a known language. Paul, now using the first person, says that if he prays in a known language that he doesn't understand, then my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. As seen in the analysis of the previous verse, this is not an uncommon thing. People read prayers in other languages often in churches. If they don't know the meanings of the words, then there's no comprehension of what is being said. I remember at Grace Baptist one time, I think Dave was still there at the time, and he had missionaries come stand up there and had Hitako go up there, and she read something in Japanese. And guess what? Nobody was edified. And all these people that were speaking, unless it was translated, didn't do anybody any good, right? That's what this is speaking about. His words in the coming verse will continue to explain the need for understanding both in prayer and in song. I do not remember if they had the translation too. Do you remember when you did that? No, she's looking at me blank. Anyway, they had like six people. Uh, no, what her, what's her name? Um, uh, Mike Riley's wife. Um, she went up and she read. Uh, yes, Mrs. Riley. She went up on the stage and she read. She, she said a prayer in Chinese because they had been in China, right? Okay, they had these people doing this. I don't remember if they actually translated. If they didn't, that was what the Bible is speaking about, and they did wrong. They did not do according to Scripture. If you say something in a language, you should have it translated. But I remember them doing that. I, it was years and years and years ago. Anyway, um, his words in the coming verse will continue to explain the need for understanding, both in prayer and in song. Songs may be even more than prayers. Uh, maybe even more than prayers are often sung in other languages. It is nice to hear them, and they may be great melodies, like when Burke walked in today. But unless the words are known, there's no comprehension of what is being sung. Fortunately, in that particular group, they, uh, they're a messianic group over in Israel, and they put out all of these great songs once a year. And when they do, they always put the uh, Hebrew, and then they put the Hebrew transliteration. In other words, exactly what they're saying in Hebrew, 
but transliterated, and then they put it in English with the English translation. So you can not only learn the Hebrew because you're following along with what they're saying, okay, Gadol Adonai, right? So you can see that, and then you can read it in English so you can now get the understanding of what they're saying because they're saying it so fast your mind can't grasp it. Well, you follow the, the transliteration for a couple weeks, and then you follow the English translation, and it all comes together. It's a great way of learning Hebrew. It's a great way. Okay, so I'll read that again. It says, songs maybe even more than prayers are often sung in other languages. It's nice to hear them, and they may be great melodies, but unless the words are known, there's no comprehension of what is being sung, but they give you that comprehension. They're wonderful, beautiful songs. Hedico knows. I sit and sing them all day long. The, the, they come up on the uh, thing, and poor Hedico has to listen to me sing. I'm the worst singer in the world. If there is no understanding, then there is no fruit for the mind. There's no growth, no development, and no edification. Paul is continuously bringing his words back to development and growth in Christ. His instruction shows a desire for Christian maturity, not immaturity. If the congregation continuously focuses on tongues, there will be no growth at all. Instead, there will be a weak and ineffective group that is bent on self-centeredness and division, which is exactly which was found in Corinth. Life application, we have, uh, I, I can't do another one. It's not going to fit. Life application, there are several purposes for gathering in a church setting. We are there to praise and worship the Lord. We are to go there for fellowship with others. And we are also to go in order to receive instruction and grow in our walk with the Lord. By clinging to childish habits in the church, we will continue on in immaturity. Let us endeavor to grow and develop in Christ each time that we assemble as a body. That's the purpose of being in the church. So let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to be effective in the church in whatever our gift is. If it is speaking in a tongue, then help it to help that person that speaks in that tongue to use it in a wise manner so that people are edified through the use of that tongue. If they understand Hebrew or Greek, then they can benefit the uh, congregation through that, then that's wonderful. We've had Brother Usama come and speak in Arabic. And when he speaks in Arabic, he explains what it means and why we should pay attention to the understanding of that particular word. This is what you would have us do. And so help us to follow that pattern and that path and to be mature in our thinking in the church and then to use that wisely as we go out into the world for your glory and for the honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Back this baby up. Oh, oh, oh. Can't believe I sat here for an hour and a half with sandals on. Let's yeah, see. I know. That's your feet.